Welcome to the Big Scuba Podcast. Let's get on with the show. So uh, here we are. Welcome to episode nine. Gemma, nine. We're at nine. Episode nine. Yep. They're whizzing, whizzing by. Thank you once again for downloading this podcast. We are being listened to now. It's worldwide. Well, it is. Uh, unbelievable. I'm here in Bungie. You're over there in, in Suffolk. So uh, for those who don't know the UK all that well, we are on the east coast of the UK. This is going to be another cracker for you. This is brilliant. You know, the podcasts are, are for learning, you know, it's a, and this is what we do. I'm learning. Gemma's learning. And Gemma's now telling me to speed up. So with no further ado, I hope you everybody enjoys it. This is the first of the Christina Sonato podcast. Yep. And we've got some shout outs to do first though, haven't we, before we get into the episode? Thanks for organising me. Just I would normally forget. So let's do the shout outs. Right, who we got to say we've got some new patrons who we have. So welcome. First off, let's say hello to Matthew. Thanks for you know coming to join in. So uh, as promised, shout out to you, Matthew. Hello, Matthew. Susan, you know, really kind of you. Thank you very much. Ted, hi, Ted. And John, you know, thank you very much to you guys. We need need your support. Yeah, thank you very uh, much. Thank you. It's brilliant. Also, we've got a new friend of the podcast, and I'm now going to tell you who he is. His name is Andy Clark, a.k.a. Andy the Northern Diver. Andy, hello. Hello. Brilliant guy. He's busy, uh, is out there on all the social medias start with YouTube. He does short, snappy, punchy videos about how to set your kit up. Big on fitness. He's full really of energy. Up. He is full of, absolutely full of energy. Look him up on YouTube as the Andy, the Northern Diver. He's also on Instagram. He's on uh, Facebook as well. And also on Twitter as Andy the ND, N for Norman, D for Del. So yeah, that's great. Do that. Also, a couple other little uh, mentions. We've been talking to Scuba Radio in America. You know, hello Greg. Hello Greg, and also Bubble Boy. I hope I've got Bubble that right. Boy. <laughs> but yeah, hello Greg, and uh, the guys over at Scuba Radio. That's fascinating. I think we learned loads from that, didn't we, Jeremy? Yeah, and we'll be tuning in every week. Okay, I think that's it. Yep, we're ready to head over to an interview with Christina Zanato. Enjoy, everyone. Christina Zanato, welcome to the part of the Big Scuba Podcast. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. We're chatting on Skype. Apologies if um, we lose connection and uh, there's interference, but we'll, we'll do what, what we can. We're speaking to you. You're in Bahamas. I'm in Freeport, Grand Bahama. Yes. Nice and warm there at the moment. Uh, yesterday was 28 Celsius. Today, after the night rain, it cooled down a little bit. I'm pretty sure it's like 25. Awesome. That's about 10 degrees here at the moment. It's quite chilly here today for some reason. And uh, but there we go. That's that's. Yeah, that's the UK for you. Gemma's uh, speaking to us as well from uh, uh, her house in Lowestoft. I'm in Bungie and you're in the Bahamas. Very nice. So Christine has dedicated uh, 
a life to exploration, education and conservation. A recognised diving professional for the last 24 years, Christina shares her knowledge about the ocean, sharks, caves and scuba diving. Started diving in 1994, making the Bahamas her home and diving for her life and hobby and life, basically. Manages a team of 18 divers, teaches hundreds of, hundreds of students at all levels from open water to full cave divers and specialises in shark handling, dealing with sharks. Uh, also a proud member of the Women Divers Hall of Fame since 2011. Correct. The Explorers Club the Ocean Artist Society, and a Platinum Pro 5000 recipient. That's correct. The belief that fuels her work is the knowledge is power through knowledge, and we can conquer and defeat unfounded fear to better connect to our oceans and the environment and strive to live in a mutual benefit. Christine is an active supporter of OWUSS, which That's I believe is to do... World Underwater Scholarship Society. Which is to also connected with the Rolex. Yes, and it's a very good uh, scholarship to look into. They have three chapters. One is American, one is European, Asian, and the other one, and oh, sorry, European, and the other one is Australasian, and caters to uh, young people between 20 and 26, and uh, they have a phenomenal scholarship. So it's called the Our World Underwater Scholarship Society, and I encourage young listeners to look into this. Uh, it's a three winners a year, three selected people. There's quite a lot of qualifications, but the amazing part is they receive a full scholarship for a year to travel around the world and be exposed to whatever they wish to learn. A read, there's a free diving, NGOs, a working for BBC, filmmaking, photography, and all of that to then further into the career that is related primarily with the world of scuba diving, science, communication. Mm. Now, we had on our previous episode, a couple of episodes back on episode four three uh ladies who were and was that gemos at may may doricop yeah she was a winner a couple of years ago yeah so they was here yes yeah so they're little fat, they're friends of the podcast as well yeah. <laughs> so inca may and grace wasn't there we had on the podcast so, um, so hello to you guys if you're listening so yeah we had we'd come across that before um so also you're a paddy course director advanced cave and diving instructor technical instructor and specialize in shark diving and shark behavior speak five languages italian english german french and spanish and possibly shark so we hear hence you're known as uh, famously as the shark whisperer that's what other people call me i call myself the shark listener Yes, I don't speak to sharks. What I do is I listen to them. I watch them in their behaviors and I read about them, but then I just observe and then I adapt my behavior and my day according to the sharks. So it's more like a listener than a, than a whisperer. Yeah. I have to adapt myself to them. I don't expect them to adapt to me. You're in their environment, aren't you? Yes. You, if you're whispering, you can't listen. Really, I know people love that, but for shark whispers, never, never stick with me. I, I'm truly, I honestly believe I'm a shark listener. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Actually, I, you know, that thought didn't occur to me till you've now explained it like that. So, what was the reason why you enrolled into the uh, Women Divers Hall of Fame in 2011? Uh, you don't enroll you are selected and it's an induction so people uh, may find your qualifications and what you've been doing um, 
worthy of being inducted into the Women Diver Hall of Fame, and then they propose your candidacy, and you have to send in, obviously, the contact unit, so you have to send in your bio and what you've done and what your work is, and then there's a committee, a secret committee inside the Women Diver Hall of Fame that selects six, about six women uh, per year to be inducted. I was approached by people that knew my work, and uh, they told me between what I've been doing for sharks, shark conservation, a lot of the local people education here, I do a lot of local courses at dive master and instructor level, and then all the sh- uh, cave conservation work, they decided to um, promote my candidacy. And I think primarily, if I want to use one word, I think it was education and outreach for which I was inducted. I have few records, but it was not that. Um, the Women Diver Hall of Fame was born primarily to enhance women in the beginning that had achieved records, you know, depth, distance, firsts, and all of that. But with the years, they actually have evolved more into what is also the outreach that these women do, what is their contribution to scuba diving in general, not only women, and what is their involvement with the community. So also those kind of achievements. Mine was the role that I have been having in education on so many different levels. Mm. Yeah. yeah, that's good. Um, I just then also as well, a uh, note I want to pick up on is that you were also the first woman to have connected a, a land cave with an ocean blue hole. Yes, that's correct. So an ocean blue hole is a cave uh, that is out into the ocean around the islands of the Bahamas and could be miles offshore or within certain amount of 100 yards or 200 yards. It depends and can be very close. It can be even in a in a creek. Uh, there have been previous divers that have swum from the cave into the creek, but I actually swam from an inland cave, so surrounded by homes on a road, and then I actually surfaced about 500 feet in the ocean into a ocean blue hole known as chimney. Um, wow. Your famous uh, explorer, Rob Palmer, had defined that cave as one of the world's dangerous cave he had experienced in his life. He mentioned that in one of his books. And uh, a lot of uh, divers have told me that although the holes were in line, if you looked at the map, they're very much in line with each other. Those two caves didn't connect. So I started diving the ocean hole, but the ocean hole is a tidal dependent, weather dependent, my time dependent. It had a lot of issues. Uh, you can only access it on slack tide. Obviously, it has to be during the daytime. Otherwise, you can't find it. It has to have very good visibility. You can't have six-foot seas coming through because it's in the ocean. And then I start tackling from the land side. And the land side is extremely polluted. It's one of those holes that helped me actually promote a later Ben's Cave, the conservation of Ben's Cave. And uh, the exploration of that was extremely slow and extremely painful. So it took me about five years of attempts trying to find the correct time, the correct tides, my time available to go through this cave. I found quite a lot of thousands feet of line. And finally, I connected them on December 31st, 2012. And funny enough, I actually had a Rolex scholar coming in, coming back. I had a series of three days of good tides and good weather and no work. And so I texted him and said, I'll wait for you. So I took uh, um, Oscar Svensson with me on the final day of the connection. So some experience to have, isn't it, for someone? Absolutely. Because I certified as a cave diver in October. Then he went away and then came back for the holidays. And so I waited for him to push the connection on the final day. Yeah, wow. That's quite a task to, to do that. You know, it's quite an achievement. 
It is. It was a very uh, difficult task for the nature of the cave and the nature of the current. Uh, some of the chemicals in the water uh, also ate my line. So if I put in the line and I couldn't go back for a week or two and then I went back, if I tug on the line, the line might just disintegrate. Um, the line that I use, it's a nylon line. It's a braided uh, 24 pounds pull. And mm -hmm. It takes a lot of strength, but the, the water chemistry seemed to dissolve the consistency of the line, and the line just snapped in my hands like in like a hair, like in little pieces. So I had to always be careful when I went in, because uh, the line is the uh, basic line is life. The line is what takes me back to the surface. So I had to always constantly test the line and give it little tugs. And as soon as the line went ping, I had to stop the dive, trace my steps back, secure the line that had broken reconnected with new lines so and how long uh, did that all take roughly from the time you thought about doing it to the time you completed it well i dived in a hole for many years prior to but when i first when I, from the time i decided really to to work for it and through that it's about five years i would say <laughs> yes because in between i had all the other things to do you know i had other caves i had courses I had the day job maybe on some days i went and did something else or so Quite a lot of things too. That's cool. So you're, you're based, as we said, mainly in Bahamas. Do you work anywhere else? No, I am based in Freeport, Bahamas. I've been invited in other places. So I travel to places to either speak or maybe dive uh, or a combination of, of but um, my work is based in the Bahamas. So I've been in Fiji and, and looked into, you know, how they do their shark dives. I stayed for like three weeks each segment just to see in the same place twice just to see how they do it. And I've done that uh, for quite a few locations. Um, I'm not a big traveler. So if you were asking, if you ask me how many recreational locations I've been to, I most likely can count them on the fingers of one hand after 26 years diving experience. Uh, yeah. When I travel, I try to focus on things that really passion me. So usually either sharks or caves with a component of uh, discovery with a component of exploration with a component of information so what can i gather from this experience that then i can bring back uh, to to the people it's part of the three words the exploration education conservation the reason why i use those three is you have to explore your environment whatever it is you have to go out and learn about it read about it meet people enter that environment. Once you explore that environment, you need to educate yourself about it. So uh, if we want to talk about caves, when I first learned about caves, I was like, oh, wow, they're beautiful. I want to become a cave diver. But then I started reading uh, geology books and uh, ecosystem books and start making references. Once I acquired that education for myself and I'm more prepared to share that education with others. And then that results in conservation. So that's how the three things work for me. You explore because I think that's what keeps the fuel alive. You educate yourself first so you can share with others. And then together you can push for conservation. Yeah, and preservation of it. Yeah, that's good. And it's true when you think about it, because um, otherwise you're just a tourist and not understanding we're not learning anything from it, are you? So I think it's good that you do that and you've got those those steps. Yes. My, my course director trainer um, said uh, something that is very, very interesting. He said you can have 
a 10 years experience or you can have 10 one year experience. And that means you, if you have 10 years experience, if through the 10 years you evolved and grew and acquired more knowledge and information and capabilities, or you can be stuck with the uh, assumption that you have it all and know it all. And so for 10 years, you repeat what you've done for that one year and you never really grow and never really improve. Mm-hmm. And I think that is a very good statement. There. Yeah, yeah. yeah so that's something that you can apply to life, actually. Absolutely. Good stuff. Now, you also, I've seen, we've seen you on YouTube. You've done some work with the BBC, um, film work and TV work. Yeah. Do you find that good fun? Do you, is that a side of life that you enjoy doing that side of things? Well, I've been on, on quite a lot of TV programs from Funny One to um, BB Science, Nova, Quark, uh, Ushuaia. I mean, very, very interesting programs, as well as I've been featured on quite a lot of magazines. Uh, some of the work is very interesting. Uh, Some of it is quite a lot of fun. Um, It is fairly disruptive of a routine, so it takes a little bit of adapting. But if the uh, results are as positive, for example, as the program Bahama Blue or Blue Planet Live, then it's very, very rewarding to be part of it. I've also been part of expeditions, and those usually uh, result in like more uh, generalized uh, information shared to the public and is just rewarding to be part of the team, regardless if you're on the camera or not. So I've been on Net Geo, I've been uh, with Bob Ballard. So um, very yeah. interesting stuff. If it's, it, it is fun um, and it is good, but at the end of the day, I like to go back to my routine because that allows me to actually have more um, applications to what I'm doing and in a certain way um, more information to then share. We had Andy Torbert on uh, a couple of weeks ago and he was mentioned that um, he does both sides of things to the camera as well and um, I think he, it's always nice sometimes just to go for a dive and you don't have the cameras and that on on you as well so that's good so you, you're a guest speaker or have been a guest speaker at Eurotech BZAC to name just a few a long list of uh, a few companies and organizations who you've done speaking for I've been speaking from Dima to Beneath the Sea to ADEX to Audi Show in Italy thanks to my language I've been able to speak in different countries I speaking to schools aquariums and all of that uh, Tech Dive USA, Eurotech, oh, I can't remember all of them. Uh, I do speak on different topics, uh, sometimes a very specific, like cave diving or technical diving or a specific exploration. Some of them are more uh, generalized. Simply, and especially now, I'm, I've been doing a lot of webinars, YouTube live programs, and uh, uh, private Skype sessions with like maybe specific groups of students or a specific target audience. So yeah. I, I, I really love that. I actually, if you ask me, that is a part. It makes me nervous every time, but I really love that part, that being able to share and being able to bring it up into different audiences. Get lots of practice at that now. <laughs> it's just like... Yeah. Yes, quite a lot <laughs> yeah. of practice. Yeah. I was at Eurotech last year, last February. That was really good. First time I've ever been. I think the Eurotech or Tech Dive USA or CanTech, whatever is the Tech Tech Tech, um, 
what I would like to encourage is aspiring divers or recreational divers to go to those conferences. Sometimes they feel, oh, it's a tech, and they hear that word, and they and like, oh, it's not for me. I'm not good enough. I haven't had enough dives. And it's like, no, 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 you need to go. There's actually amazing speakers that talk about the health of divers, and that is applicable to anyone, no matter if you have one dive or 10,000 dives. Um, there's yeah. talks about how to start, and there's talks about maybe they're very considered to be advanced, but they're always interesting. Plus, you meet agencies and you meet instructors that may actually enlighten you better on the possibilities. I think overall, anyone that is in love with scuba diving, no matter their level, should attend those conferences, not just because it's a tech. You don't have to be a tech diver. No. It opens the world up a bit, doesn't it? And it, you can then kind of choose what direction you're going to go in and, and try things. And if you don't like it, there's other. It's not just diving. There's all different. Yeah, there's a world out there, isn't there? It's yeah. 71% of our planet is made of water, and we can do everything and anything on the water. There's just so many different ways, and some of us like certain things and. Some of us don't, and so it's good because I won't be here, but you will be there, and then we'll bring back all these experiences. But definitely these are uh, conferences to go to, to also sample and then to hear things. Like I could be a conference like, oh, I didn't know they actually do diving in Greenland, right? And it's like, oh, well, how do they do diving in Greenland? Oh, you have all these things that you can do in one trip. Yeah. And it's pretty amazing. It's good exposure, I think. Yeah, definitely. One last thing for me for a minute till we pass over to Gemma. Uh, you also found a member of People of the Water, which is a not-for-profit organisation to widen the conduction and distribution of training, education, research and studies relating to water, oceans and the env environmental issues affecting both the people and the animals of said environment. Yes, I founded that in January 2019. Uh, with the help of some, some good friends, it is is a 5010C nonprofit re registered in the U.S. And uh, everything that you read about it is basically the work that I've been doing for the last 20 years. The idea of the nonprofit is I always done all this work on my own time and out of my own uh, pocket money, um, replacing lines, putting you know driving to the caves, uh, providing all this information, buying all the gear. Um, hosting people, taking people out and all of that. And so uh, the idea of the nonprofit is uh, to help a little bit support better uh, this work that I continue to do. And then the hope which has started already is to expand it so that sooner or later the nonprofit can actually support uh, the training of other young people. So um, it is in its infancy, is one year old. And uh, we're still working with it and through it. Uh, but hopefully can assist a little bit in what I've been doing for all this time. That's good then. So what kind of started you to get into diving? Was there anybody that inspired you? Or it started off as a kid. I come from the ocean family. Um, both my mom and dad are uh, ocean people. Primarily my dad, though, inspired me with his uh, old pictures of when he was in the military service. Uh, it's uh, the elite Italian divers called Arditi Incursori. Um, they actually are precursors of the Green Beret in the UK. Those are the people that went with underwater systems, you know, 
uh, oxygen rebreathers uh, training for war, but in his stories there was also what he saw under the under the ocean, what he experienced out at sea at night, and and so there was the beauty of it. And I grew up in this ocean world, and no matter where we were, even when we were in the rainforest in the Congo, which I grew up as a child and teenager, on a Sunday we would drive down to the coastline and you know dive into this rough oceans of you know the west coast of Africa and uh, he was I would say the inspiration through his pictures my dream was one day to become an underwater scuba ranger who would roam the seas and tell people what to do and what not to do without having to get out of the water because my lips were purple and I would have sharks for friends fast forward that at age 22 I had the opportunity to take um, a vacation through a series of uh, negative replies and coincidences um, of destinations, I ended up in the Bahamas. I had no clue where the Bahamas were and what they were at the time. We're talking about 1994. It was, I just want to get scuba diver certified. And so as uh, back to Italy, my destinations basically branched off from Italy. So most places end up. Nothing, nothing worked. And so this last resource was ended up in the Bahamas where I found this uh, location to become certified. And then I found this hotel where they were looking for someone who spoke languages to work with the foreign customers because the girls only spoke English. And while I was on vacation, I did an interview and I had about two days to decide. And in two days while on vacation, I decided I will go back home, leave everything that I had, my job, my boyfriend, my car and move back to the Bahamas so I could continue to work in the hotel and uh, be a diver. Within six, seven months I already knew that that was not a year. It would have been many more years. The idea was to remain in the hotel business while traveling and experience all these different oceans. Within the year, I had met Ben Rose, who then became my mentor for shark diving. I discovered shark diving here. I've been exposed to the caverns, not the caves, the caverns. And uh, the choice to move from hotel to diving professional was the next one. And then I started from zero. I started my way up from diving instructor and learn how to drive the boats, teaching DSDs, open water courses, slowly climbed up. Yeah, just learn profession like that. It is. I do recommend people to take their time. Sometimes I feel maybe I sound old saying that uh, people burn their uh, bridges a little bit too fast and they, they forego actually experiencing uh, things that they've learned so they learn and then they learn the next thing and then they learn the next thing and they learn but they don't take a breather in between to actually learn what the the card that they've been given tells them to do so it's like yes very good now you have that why don't you do a few dives at that level because the things will go wrong and certain things will happen but at that level you're trained to deal with them yeah and you might have someone else that is more experienced that will help you deal with that. Now, once you pocket that experience, take the next level. And so uh, yeah. I still recommend sometimes to take take a break and take a breather in between courses and gain experience away from the umbrella of an instructor. It's not just going wrong. It could be something as simple as, oh, I hear a leak. Yeah. Right? And as, as a leader, as a dive master, and especially as an instructor, uh, in a certain way, uh, after the first, second, or third time, you should be able to identify the leak uh, within a quick overview. You know where to check. But if you've never experienced that and you go too fast, 
when the leak happens as a leader, you might find yourself incapable of actually identifying that. Uh, I can hear and see things from a distance. I can be on the rating watching a boat uh, be ready with the team on board the boat, and I can see something being put on incorrectly by a diver while leaning on the railing, talking to someone, just overseeing the boat. And the younger person, I'm not saying this to discredit them, but they're young, right? The younger dive master that maybe I just certified and is training, standing right next to the issue and not even noticing it's happening. It's just little body language and body quirks. I'm not saying, you know, I have to wait 26 years, but you, when you guide certified divers, um, you do expect a certain part of responsibility on them. So when you have the little mishaps, you can learn. When yeah. you teach uncertified divers, the burden is very much more on the instructor. So you want to have that cushion. Now, there are people that can do some of those back-to-back, depending on what their experience has been so far. Uh, there are people that I recommend to, to wait. Um, when I train uh, the Bahamians here, I have that power of saying, very good, you're done, you're dive master. And now you're going to sit dive master for a year or that was really, really good because you waited to become a dive master. And now you can do your dive master and instructor for a year. My advantage is, is I watched them grow from about 16 through 18 through their training. So I can very much gauge, but I can also decide where their training goes and which level. And some benefit very much in stopping a dive master for a year. And some have done very well doing the dive master and instructor because they had previous experience. But again, I have, you know, three to four years with them. So, yeah. Have you found your passion for diving has kind of changed as the world has changed? Because obviously conservation is much more in the public eye now. Have you seen it kind of develop over the last 20 odd years? Well, when I started, I was young and uh, very selfish. I'm meaning I had discovered this incredible world on the water world. And all I wanted to do is to be in it. I, I used to complete uh, four to six dives per day. I used to go diving on my day off. I was obsessed with diving, uh, ocean diving, shark diving, cave diving. And it was very much for the first couple of years, uh, I say selfish, uh, meaning it was about my experience and what I could get out of it and the what I wanted to learn and what I wanted to see. But it shifted very quickly because when you love something, you also want to protect it. So it was a, a gradual, um, if you ask me when and how, I don't know, because I started talking about shark conservation within a year of working with them. Mm-hmm. Only at first, maybe it was more theoretical. It was more just, oh, we need to protect sharks. We need to understand sharks. And then with time and exposure, I also learned how to target it. But yes, it definitely has changed uh, my selfish part hasn't changed meaning i still love to go diving you you can't stop me i I still love to go diving i still want to see and learn i still want to experience people i still want to share things i just have maybe a a broader outlook on being able through the years to connect conservation of sharks and caves and people never made the two uh, you know a connection but like having a better view i think i also improved my communication (laughs) <laughs> and have you seen kind of the effect that you've had on people through your journey, kind of your passion? Have you seen it change people that you've met along other divers or other people involved in the ocean life? Big time. 
I've, I've seen it on a one-on-one. So when I started, we're talking about 94. By the time I was involved with sharks, it was 95. And uh, those are the times where changes were seen either from direct contact with divers or maybe the occasional uh, magazine article. There was no Instagram or Facebook or Internet. And so it was very much a um, one-on-one seeing changes of the people on the boat, which I still see to this day. People come to do the shark dive and still have this mix of uh, excited fear, curiosity, and a mix. So I still see the one-on-one changes. I obviously see a bigger change through social media from the messages I I receive. But once I start seeing that change, then I realize that what I was doing had a worth and and a a possibility. What it taught me, because I come from such a a long time back, is that um, the change doesn't need to be in the millions of followers and or anything like that, a change could be a one-on-one. And mm-hmm. you believe in the fear of the star thrower, make a change and make a difference for that one person. And that one person make a difference for another person. And it's kind of like a little bit of a ripple effect. Yeah. Yeah. Really good. And obviously with the COVID situation at the moment, are you still actually diving or can you, what sort of things are you doing in the realms of isolation? Cause you did mention you've been diving. Yes. So yeah, yeah. Uh, we can't, we can't ocean dive anything that has to do with boating and uh, ocean recreational diving is uh, forbidden. So right now I can go and visit my sharks. But I have a spe- we have a special permit issued by the police through the Bahama National Trust, which is a nonprofit organization for the Bahamian for marine protected areas. Mm-hmm. As I've been cooperating with them for 15 plus years, I've been included in, as park warden and we're allowed to continue our work in the cave system, water level monitoring, water sampling and obviously all the other work, which is including of uh, um, 3D mapping, uh, regular mapping, and also interactive map, which is all tools that we're going to use for the park, interactive tools for customers. So that permit is allowing us on the 24-hour lockdown to go from my apartment to the caves, obviously replenish the car and back home. Um, I mean, there's nothing better than social isolation and being in a cave and full kit <laughs> asking all of that um but has helped into the isolation issues for for sure yeah. i'm glad that i can still do this uh the advantage of this is we've been going full force we do about two dives per week um spaced out we do a four-hour dive, usually, like when the rebreather, the oxygen, all the tanks are completely topped off and ready to go. And then we do a following two-hour dive to um, maybe pick up something, finish some little things close to the entrance. Progress has been outstanding. I mean, the amount of data, video, pictures that we have, everything that we have to analyze, is going to keep me busy for the next month. <laughs> well that's good that you've been able to yeah still get in the water a little bit <laughs> yeah absolutely helps yeah. in the uk we're all because you know because this lockdown none of us can get out in the water and we're all looking at our wetsuits and our dry suits thinking we so need to get out into the sea and do something and into the lakes and just i i know i feel it it's it's um for me it's an absolute 
blessing that I've had this this opportunity to continue my work through the Bahama National Trust and yeah. very very happy and it's very useful the the fact that we have so much time is really producing results faster because as being volunteer work before had to be in between work so mm-hmm. sometimes a night after work after diving all day on the day off but then you also need the day off to do other things well right now I can really pace into the cave and then into the uh, days that you need to do other things when I'm not diving then I've been doing like this podcast but quite a lot of uh, webinars right. through different operations or other companies like uh, the diver medic or uh, sharks for kids and then I've been doing also YouTube live programs on my own and private Skype classroom so I'm busier than when I'm actually at work because when I work I have to dive what much more <laughs> We're now involved in quite a lot of projects. So let's talk more about sharks. Your, uh, would you say it's your favourite subject? No, not necessarily. Uh, no. I love sharks. I love oceans. I love caves. I love even other subjects like literature and, and art, which is primarily you know, my status and my background is not always my favourite subject. Okay. You, you'd be surprised to come in my apartment and find out there's not that many sharky stuff hanging uh, around. You have a lot of shark books and things like that. I do. I have over 40 shark books. I've been reading a lot about sharks, but it's not that you come in my apartment, you're going to find shark pictures and shark mugs and shark plates and shark loafers <laughs> and shark pajamas. It's uh, it shark hat on the, on the YouTube video. Stumpy. <laughs> oh, the shark, the, the shark hat. Yeah, that's so cute. Yeah. <laughs> so why not? other animals you know like whales or an octopus or something like that why why sharks there was this movie when i was eight years old in which this guy had sharks for friends this was 1978 uh in the wake of jaws which came out in 1974 and in this movie although pretty gory and a little bit you know like obviously sharks biting people and all of that this guy used his power to protect the sharks and use the sharks to punish the people that actually harmed the sharks. Uh-huh. And in, in, in this pretty cheesy movie, I'm pretty sure if I saw it now, but it was the concept that there was someone that it was willing to actually hurt other people uh, when they hurt sharks, when they hurt his friends. Not that I want to hurt people, uh, by all means. But it was uh, very much as a child, I was very impressed by this concept that someone will risk so much Uh, to save an animal like that and it came together with my mom and dad's education Uh, being people of the ocean my mom's family is a sailing family and all of that they always taught me that there are no monsters in the sea only the one we make in our heads Mm -hmm. and so uh, once you realize that a shark is not a monster but is actually an animal that has certain characteristics that can be studied and can be understood then it becomes imperative to show these to everyone else. It's really interesting how people are very keen on wanting to save polar bears. By no means one of the gentlest animals on this planet, if you want to really consider. I mean, nature in itself is not kind. Nature is very much cutthroat, but at the same time is very uh, direct. And so for me, it was very important to... Um, do the same with sharks. Sharks are part of nature. They are animals. They're not monsters. They're not mindless killing machines. We need to take the time to learn about them, appreciate them, and 
understand that we need them more than we may like to admit. Mm. We need them on so many levels. Um, I do full talks about why we need sharks, why sharks. So I'm the Lorax and I speak for the sharks. So just like within a, a sentence or two, why why do you say we need sharks? have been on this planet for over 400 million years and they've been designed by nature to keep themselves very much in balance and in check. Unfortunately, their characteristics, their natural characteristics makes them very vulnerable to our presence. And it's one of those words that people, when people say, how do you describe sharks? I say vulnerable. Mm. They're beautiful, they're nature's masterpiece, they're a top, you can say what I want, to me they're vulnerable. Uh, we need sharks, the sharks are... Um, controllers of the the food chain. So at the mesoteric level, as well as the apex level, uh, sharks are filling all the roles, short of herbivorous grazers, that they are everywhere in the web. Yeah. They maintain health of their population. They do uh, interactions with other animals. They... Um, could eliminate, and, and there's a lot of studies, I've been trying to read some papers on it as well, I just asked a friend of mine to send me more papers, it's very hard to determine the complete role of sharks into an ecosystem just because it's a so vast and so sharks are so different, yeah. but you have this uh, stabilizing role, first of all. They also um, maintain a balance amongst other uh, predators. Right. So if you eliminate something, then you don't know how that is going to go out of balance. And they also maintain the balance of the uh, ground consumer. So let's say you eliminate a shark that maintain herbivorous. You might find that then the herbivorous consumes everything that is out there and that causes a lateral collapse. Mm -hmm. um, the paper that actually associate that to I, I was just mentioning that somewhere else and I found this paper is really cool that associated to the wolves in a Yellowstone park. And it calls the wolves to save the river. It's like, wait, you introduce wolves in the Yellowstone park and now the river's banks are more solid. And you start reading this paper and the interconnection of the wolves that doesn't allow the elk to uh, graze as much but have to move more. When they move more, they actually move the soil more. By moving the soil more, the soil is more fertile. But then by eliminating the elk, uh, just snapping down on this specific plant, then the beaver actually made a comeback, which create the dams, which actually helps the river, which helps the fish. And it's just mind-blowing, really, isn't it? It's just the, something so, can, so small can impact, like, the whole yeah environment nature finds a way one of the things i think we forget is uh, especially a first world country we forget that there's a 70 percent of the world that relies on the oceans as a direct source of livelihood of like basic food on the table is uh some fish and some sort of tuberose when i was in fiji and it's like either fruit and cassava or cassava and fish and fruit cassava and fish and if you're in a village that is is a diet and so we we talk about sharks but we forget we're on top here and 
there are studies about the collapse of fisheries due to either overfishing or killing or taking away. So we need sharks. We need sharks for many, many reasons. We don't want to get to the point where sharks are gone and we find out too late. That's right. And things like finning and things like that has all got stopped. So, yeah. You do some fantastic things with sharks. You know, we're seeing that on your YouTube and your other programs and things. Probably scare most people in your chainmail suit and things like that. There must still been times which you would probably put in the category of, oh, flip, or that was a learning point. No, never. Uh, because to, to do what I do, both in cave and sharks, you need uh, a plan. You need thoughts. Now, we had learning points with the sharks, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, when the Ben Rose is starting the feeding, he used a little, um, you know, like a little plastic bag. We'll learn very quickly that a plastic bag does not resist to a, a shark bite um, or a mesh. And, and, and it's not just the sharks, you know, a grouper as well can steal the plastic bag. So there was little learning process on how it, to interact with the sharks like that. But it was done with so much thinking and forethought that um, it was never been like to that level and, and on the chainmail suit is the same concept the chainmail suit came in uh, unfortunately here uh, a little bit late there was an incident but uh, and that was way before the end uh, the chainmail but the chainmail is the helmet that you wear when you go rock climbing is the seatbelt that you fasten when you go driving a car and you don't fasten it and it's not that every time you fasten a seatbelt you're like oh well today i'm gonna hit something and the seatbelt is going to work you wear in the unlikely event of and the chainmail suit is the same concept i am hand feeding and handling very close proximity to the sharks from their mouths and the chainmail is there to prevent what i call accidental bites but if you look at the video you can see that the sharks just come in and I'm reaching out with my hands and they either allow me to touch them or sometimes they totally avoid them within half split of a second. They're away. Even when I think I can reach them with my fingertips, they, they don't allow me to. But is there to prevent in case there is an accidental bite or I have a 120 pound dog. When I come through the door, sometimes he steps on my foot. When he jumps up, he actually, I have marks on my body from, you know, him jumping up happy to see me and falling down and scratching me. Yeah. Um, so it is a very much a lack of malicious intent, but is there to prevent and, and to prevent accidental bites? Because I do believe that I need to protect myself to protect them. Yes. But I also need to do what is necessary to demonstrate knowledge. I have a lot of people criticize, it's like, oh, if sharks are not dangerous, why are you wearing a chainmail suit? It's like, because I'm feeding them. If I were to go in a beehive to collect honey, I will wear a beekeeper suit. If I were to be in the garden, there's bees flying around, I won't wear the beekeeper suit. When I go diving with sharks to take pictures or just to escort people seeing them, I don't wear the chain suit. Yeah, Christine, that's a great point you made, especially with the beekeeper suit. Um, it's a very good analogy. How, just roughly, what does it weigh, the suit? There's different sizes, but it's around 20 to 25 pounds, depending on uh, different sizes. I have like four different sizes because I don't only have my suit, but I also have suits for people to, to dive in it. But it's about 20 to 25 pounds. So you're looking about nine and a half to 10 kilos. So you know you've got that on you fairly then? 
So it's not too heavy if you think about it. If you're a, a British diver uh, or a technical diver, you definitely carry more weight than that. The problem with the chamo that I always explain uh, the students that come and do my shark handling course is you can't ditch it. It's lacking of the number one requirement of the weight belt, which is quick release. Once yeah. you're inside the suit, and I have your hands taped and your socks on and your belt tightened, you can release it. So uh, one of the things that we uh, pay a lot of attention to is people need to be extremely comfortable with their mask and regulator on and obviously with their buoyancy in order to be able to deal with, uh, uh, you know, the suit itself. Because if somebody is uncomfortable, I can't just ditch the suit and make them instantly buoyant. And for that reason, there's a full protocol that I've written about the shark dive, how it goes, who watches home, who rescues home, how the roles intersect, how to egress someone from the water, where does the food go? I mean, it's like a, a 10 pages protocol that I've written on the shark dive that everybody has to go through if they want to be part of the team. So can you make a normal ascent with that on? Like, well, you're going to have to inflate, you have to inflate your BCD. You do, yeah. Yeah, and then you become neutrally buoyant and you do a, an ascent. Yeah, because we've seen you standing on the on the ground feeding the sharks. Yes, I stand on the ground. So I swim from the boat to the front. Basically, the dive site is right where the mooring line is. Yeah. Uh, and is one, again, of those uh, uh, parameters. You want the site and the boat close to each other. You don't want to be uh, feeding sharks while the boat is drifting and then surfacing and launching a uh, a, a surface signals and have the boat, you know, looking for this and coming up and yeah. picking you up 10 minutes later. I've seen that in Mexico. Mm. Um, for me, it's imperative that the boat with the surface support, with the trauma kit and everything is on the site. And uh, basically, I swim down there, take the fins off, stand on the bottom, finish the dive, and then put the fins on and float. And that goes also with the choice of the site is always the same site in the same specific area. It's a nice, wide, sandy area. It stays away from the coral heads to avoid steering up sand over the corals. Mm -hmm. And it's only like a 10 meters, a 30 foot area uh, where we do this of standing in the sand. So although there is an impact, it is a very limited and very carefully calculated on not to be too close to corals, uh, to continuously change the site or anything like that. Yeah, no, that's good. It's, you know, important for the conservation side as well, isn't it? Just to be seen to be doing the right thing as well, totally. So how did you know you got these skills? I did it, but um, I was lucky enough to end up in the Bahamas under uh, Ben Rose, Okay. who had just started doing this work with sharks and uh, he became my mentor. And then through his guidance, when I started working with sharks, he immediately said, oh, you have something special with the sharks. Um, I found a video from many, many years back when I was like 22, 23, uh, TV yeah. came to, to video Ben, but he also wanted some of his protege. And I'm on the video and I, hadn't seen it in many years and in the video says oh Christina is you know my future and all of that unfortunately uh, Ben passed away last year but um, he left me with the sharks when he saw me he said you have something with the sharks yeah that's really nice and then I started just building on it but I think the key is what I said in the beginning 
I didn't go down there expecting sharks to do anything. I went down there with a um, desire to look at them and experience them and then slowly learn to behave according to how they were. And understanding even to this day, they can have, you know, days where they want to be pet and days where they don't want to be pet, days where the weather is affecting them in a negative way or days... uh, uh, where it's affecting them in a positive way, they're more relaxed or less relaxed. And my job is a to a little bit adapt to them. Um, I mean, if guys want to come and do this course, they'll help them a lot with their wives. But um, <laughs> <laughs> okay. So if if you've got like a, you, it's a particularly like stormy day, and you know that you're going to go diving. Do you know is your expectation of how the sharks are going to act usually right? Yes. So yes. I do have a, some understanding now after all these years. And I call my sh- myself, you know, if I take someone down new, I tell them, I said, I am your shortcut. So I'll advise, oh, you know, let's just feed very little or let's not feed at all. Uh, mm-hmm. Let's pet more. Let's interact more, depending also on the day. Um, sometimes they surprise me, but for the most part, uh, what I see on the surface and how I see how they react when the boat comes in then is how they are when they are down on the bottom. Uh, one of the uh, most observed behavior is their change in tempo. About three to four days before major hurricanes have been predicted to hit the island mm-hmm. is one of the most reliable behavior. They become very intense, mm-hmm. almost very uh, intense in the sense of like they really want to like, they seem like they want to provision very fast and very quickly. And it feels Imagine a hurricane, the amount of pressure that drops as the hurricane approaches, the millibar drops so much, affects us. Imagine animals that live in the water with eight senses. And so they're pretty amazing. I can actually guess uh, things have happened before I arrived uh, through their behavior. Somebody has been there maybe chumming or maybe has been there inadvertently fishing too close to the shark site. And I can tell that somebody has been doing that just how they react at first Mm. and then with my behavior i've been able to change and quiet down theirs through the years or so recently there's been people in the press i won't mention names for doing things with great white sharks uh going up to probably one of the biggest uh great whites known and being in all the media for swimming up to it and stroking it and we're taught by let's say paddy not to touch animals and we're just wondering what, you know, people could look at what you do and see that you're stroking them and they're, they're kind of going into a, like a, a sleepy state and things like that. And people could look at that and say, well, hold on, you know, Paddy telling us we're meant to not touch animals. We're meant to just look at them from afar, not interact, not change their behavior. And I'm just wondering what your thoughts are. You know, if someone said that to you, you know, are you doing the right thing? What's your views on people going up to something like one of the biggest great whites uh, known to man and pretending it's uh, like a dog almost so based on the premise that i touch sharks regardless of the species and how i do it is a is it different or anything like that at the end of the day it's not my place to comment on anyone else that does that because if you put it on a plate is we both touch sharks yeah um, so it's not my place to comment on that i do receive those criticisms on a 
quite regular basis. I, some of them are curious, or some of them are very aggressive and, and judgmental. I don't go in the water uh, convinced that everything I do is 100% right. Every time I pack the feeder tube to feed the sharks, I feel really bad for the fish that I'm packing into the feeder tube. I have an absolute uh, thought about the fish. I actually, uh, the, the fish I source for the sharks is one of the most sustainable ones because it's deep blue water fish uh, mackerel. And I was told by several biologists that their bycatch is absolutely almost inexistent, for example. So I don't do anything um, without thinking, what are the consequences? Is it right or is it wrong? Um, I know Patty says do not touch animal marine life, and, and I abide to that. I don't go around the world touching sharks everywhere I go. When I was invited to Fiji, their Fiji dive procedure is this way. I listen to the briefing. I don't even say who I am, and I go and do what they tell me to do. When I go and dive with my friends out at Tiger Beach to run a different operation, and they say, this is how we're going to do the tiger shark dive, I go down there and kneel down on the bottom like every other diver according to what the operator told me. So it's not that I go around and do this. I do encourage people to come and interact with my sharks. And the reason why I do that is because I know these sharks can decide when to be touched and where not. I, I can show you that. I can have a shark. I can have food in my hand and go to touch a shark. And the shark, she doesn't hear, she doesn't want to be touched. She'll swim away from me, millimeters from my fingertips. It's their decision to come in, is their decision to stay, and their decision to go. As a matter of fact, not all do that. As for disrupting their behavior, we need to think that we start feeding sharks. The first day we put a canoe in the water and we start going fishing and cleaning the fish off the back of our canoe. I'm sorry, we still had a bone in our nose and we were already, quote unquote, feeding sharks. So when somebody says, I change your behavior, I teach them to eat divers, I totally disagree for many reasons. One, sharks have been following humans from the first day we've been out in the ocean fishing. Spear fishermen will tell you where there's sharks. They'll be chasing the prey, chasing the prey, chasing the prey. The moment they spear that prey, that like, boom, the shark appears out of nowhere. It's like, where was it, 10 miles away? It's like, no, it was always there. Was just watching, waiting for you to, you know, like prepare the lasagna and pull it out of the oven. <laughs> but it's this misconception as soon as you feed the sharks, they're like, oh, you're going to teach them to eat humans. It's like, well, uh, we have no incidents of sharks going out to humans and biting or eating anyone here. And I've done this for nearly 30 years, including Ben Rose's time. Mm. So which one is the truth? Is the one where I do it or the one that you sit at home and, and type about it? Yeah. Changing behavior, I disagree because I also have information about that in the fact, like I said, we go months and months without feeding them due to hurricanes, lack of business, incapability of going out, uh, you name it. Uh, maybe I go on vacation for a month and I go away and the sharks still are present, do what they're supposed to do on the reef. And when we go back, they'll come in for the feed. If we're not there for the feed and we just go back diving, they'll just show up. Now, is it 100% correct? Probably not. But our presence as sometimes as divers is not 100% correct into the ocean. So why do I do it is uh, what Gemma asked me earlier on. Do I see a difference in people's reaction? And is, that is the thing. I see people changing perception through their messages through their questions, through their physical presence when they are with me. 
I've been invited to Singapore and to China to speak against buying people in Singapore and China to speak against shark finning, shark fin soup, shark fishing. So it does have an impact. It strikes a positive chord in people. Yeah. And that's getting the positive out of something. That's the best message that you can convey, isn't it? Turning everything into some kind of positive. I wish we didn't have to feed sharks for people to see sharks. That's the other thing. People are so curious. They're desperate <laughs> to spend time in the water with sharks. Is the number one fear and the number one thing that new divers want to do is they want, oh, I'm afraid, but I really want to see a shark. And if I see a shark, it's really dangerous. And unfortunately, to see sharks is very, very difficult. One of the reasons why shark feeding started is to make sharks more accessible to people. Because in general, sharks are kind of like, yeah, I don't think so. I'm just going to get out of here. So for those who don't understand, what we're talking about is chumming. Chumming is different than feeding for me. So there's, and that is the other thing, right? One size does not fit all. There's over 500 species of sharks. So right. should I feed the Caribbean reef sharks the same way as I feed a great white or should I feed a great white the same way I feed a Caribbean reef shark or a bull shark or a blue shark? And I'm like, my answer is no. My belief is one size does not fit all. The way we handle and interact with one species should be different than the way we handle and interact with another species. There's a huge difference between interacting and handling an ostrich or a sparrow. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, uh, that is the number one thing is we need to identify the species, the location and the methodology. And chumming is not the same as feeding. Uh, one of the key and I'm going to actually have a, a webinar later and it's going to talk about this is one of the key of shark interaction. For me, one of the way I pick other operators to go and see what to do with sharks is you have to be able to control the food in order to control the sharks. So food can be present, but you also need to be able to say, okay, no more food for you. Your heightened state, in this case, I will take this away and reduce basically the likelihood of the sharks to go in a heightened state. That for me is vital. So there's a huge difference between pulling something out and handing it specifically to a creature and then randomly throwing with his chumming food in the water. Yeah. But now, if I'm chumming want... for gray whites and then the people are in the cage, not a big deal. But if I'm chumming on the surface with Caribbean reef sharks and then throw people in, there is a high risk of an accidental bite. Not because they're going for the person, but because if you're in the middle of the scent and all that chum and all those pieces of fish, you know, they might bite a bit. So we need to differentiate where are we, what species are we, and which procedures are we following depending on all the other situation. So which if you're going to see something like a great white, you do want that heightened state because you want to see the, the big action and people photographers want to see the big shot as well, don't they, I suppose? If they're going to be in a cage, they want to see the... The, the great white doing the thing that you've always been told that's what they do they bite all these things and but they don't no see i think that is a, the mistake i think people need to go and see the great white swimming by the cage that's the reason why when i give food i just give every once in a while a little bit of food it's like tell my dog sit oh good yeah. job here's you know go to your bed here's a treat so it's a little reward 
but I try not to do and look at my videos, you know, you, you, you won't see, you know, jaws open and teeth showing and all of that because sharks don't swim around gaping their jaws every other second. They actually swim around in a very nice relaxed manner with their jaws slightly slack to ventilate. So it's, uh, um, it's a big contentious issues. So I was yeah. part of a project aware discussion at DEMA and like how to identify good operators and bad operators. And according to the original standards, I ended up having a, a star and a half. I mean, absolutely most horrific. But yet I'm invited in the discussions because what I do with the sharks is not considered bad. So yeah. we put it back on the plate in the people's eye is this and that. I do believe you need uh, differentiation. But then within the same realm, you'll have good operators and bad operators. Mm. Earlier on, we were talking about dogs and the breed of dogs. And I said, I have pit bulls. Uh, it's not the breed. It's the owner. And it's the yeah. same thing with sharks. I think shark diving can be extremely inspirational and educational. I think it can be uh, very positive for the sharks. The Bahamas are a prime example of that. We thrive on shark tourism. Sharks have been protected in the Bahamas because of shark tourism and what brings to the economy. Yeah. But we also need to uh, understand how to do it, how to safely do it. And, and that is being a good dog owner or a bad dog owner is yeah. not on the dogs. It's on the owners. And Trevor is Hollywood has spent millions, haven't they, and years of selling this preconception idea that as soon as you're in the water you're going to get bit where the actual re educated reality is actually quite the opposite it's quite different to that very much so i mean most sharks are just like any other fish they swim the ocean they see you they swim by you um i think it's a thing that we do as humans we do tend to do too much anthropomorphic interpretation of animals behavior and we put a lot of our behavior into them and I give you an example if a human being finds 10 lobsters they will collect all 10 lobsters they will not collect the two lobster that they need for dinner and then go back the next day to collect the next two that they need for dinner but they'll harvest everything that is available sharks like many other animals out there will only collect what they need in that moment for their need and for their food that's the reason why you have BBC Blue Planet Live, uh, National Geographic videos of lions sitting comfortably into the savannah as the gazelles and all their preys and everyone else uh, runs around them. Not every antelope that goes down to the river to drink is eaten by a crocodile. Mm -hmm. So it's a concept also, but then we see that on TV. So we think that is constant danger. Now I'm pretty sure antelopes are allowed to drink water out of the river on a regular basis, because if every time they drank water, they would be eaten by a crocodile, we wouldn't have antelopes. So I think it's, we need to bring back sharks to an animal level. They're creatures out there and all they want to do is live, reproduce and survive. The, that sounds like us. Yes, that's all they want to do. The, and the difference is, the other one that we need to remember is that their ocean, not ours. So calling sharks to make the, sh the ocean safer is not the correct attitude. We need, just need to learn about sharks. And again, one size does not fit all. And understand that 99% of the time we can be in the water with sharks. 
And we can go in the water even if there are sharks. And sometimes, really, rarely, sometimes, there's few little parts in the world in which we need to understand it's not our time and it's not our place. And it's okay. And it's not because you're monsters. It's simply the same way you wouldn't go out driving at 100 miles an hour if you know there's black eyes on the road. Same concept. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah. Are there any sharks that you haven't dived with that you would like to experience some underwater time with? I haven't been in the water with basking sharks. I would just love to see basking sharks. Just how they, they the way they swim. I've seen pictures of their big mouth or anything like that. Um, and I would like to see some of the more curious ones. You know, I've had opportunity in the Channel Islands to see some of the horn sharks and uh, some of these seven gills and things like that. But uh, some, I guess, I will never be able to see, but like a goblin shark, I would love to see a goblin shark, spend more time with the Wobbegons and the poor Jackson. So kind of like the, the, the cute look, looking ones, you know, they're a little bit different. Yeah. Um, I was fortunate enough to see a sawfish but in the Mediterranean many, 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 many years back. Uh, but I was on the surface freediving. I was uh, with my uncle on the sailboat. But I think the Baskin shark is on my top list as a shark. It's just, yeah, I think we have those in Scotland um, at certain times of the year. In the I mean, there's many, right? What about the thrasher shark, where they're just absolutely, you know, extremely long tail? And so I haven't seen those either. I'm pretty sure if I sit here, I'm like, oh, but I want to see that shark, too. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, she said there's over 500, 500 species of shark. Over 500. They just discovered three more less than three weeks ago. I mean, I actually can't keep up with everything that they're, they're finding. So there's over 520, I think. Yeah, that is, well, it's pretty staggering, really. It's like when people say, oh, no, there's shark in space of water, and I say, one of the first things I always try to teach when you say the word shark is I say in birds, right? You wouldn't say that all birds are black, nest in the trees and can fly. So I think the first, the thing that I want people to take away from when I talk about sharks or I'm with sharks or this and that, and sometimes I do the same mistakes as well, is that we need to start differentiating a little bit more. So when people send the questions, I'm very happy to answer, but I think the questions need to start being, I'm going here and I need to do a research on which kind of sharks are going to be here and what is their behavior, because um, we can't just generalize. If I want to be a bird watcher and I said, oh, I want to watch birds, how do I do that? It depends on the bird. Yeah, yeah, no, that's true. Yeah. Um, is there any particular breed of shark outside of the reef sharks that kind of excite you the most? Or are the reef sharks kind of your... Well, the reef sharks are my my um, my babies and I absolutely adore them, not as reef sharks, but as, as a grandma and stumpy and crook and, you know, scrunchy <laughs> as, as individuals. Uh, I could say that pit bulls excite me, but Mac and me and Blue are, you know, like really excite me. Um, the other one that fascinates me um, is actually the blue shark. And this is because of the first time I uh, went in the water with them. There was, uh, I knew the blue sharks have this beautiful blue color, right? This iridescent blue. But what I didn't expect is a First of all, how elegant their body is, but they have a little bit of dab of gold right on the top of the head. 
and it rarely comes out in pictures. And it's like this unique tip of their head is like this gold. It looks like the shark um, looked at itself in the mirror before heading out and went, oh, and I just need a little bit of dab of gold on top of my iridescent blue. So because of that first encounter, um, remain mesmerized with just absolutely their uh, color palette. Uh, being a girl here, I, I could say if I could actually have a dress that mimics the color palette of a blue shark, I'd be in absolute awe. So I just have this beautiful memory. And so that's I think that's why it still excites me to this day. It sounds such a diverse species. Is there any other animals you'd think you could transfer those skills onto? Um, is there any animal that I can transfer those skills to? In a certain way, I have, but in a different way. Um, on the dive, there's a several groupers, and they're extremely intelligent. I mean, their cognitive learning is actually higher than the sensory system, where in the sharks, the sensory system is higher than the cognitive learning. And so I actually had a couple of groupers that responded to basic hand signs. Um, the grouper tended to try to steal the fish out of the, my hand as the sharks were coming in, causing a lot of troubles, dispersing the fish, hitting my hand and all of that. And so uh, I had to train them with uh, a couple of uh, cues. The first one is I brought down, unfortunately, I brought down a white stick. And every time the grouper tried to come towards my hand to get the fish if, if I want to feed the sharks I would actually tap the grouper with a stick it, it took two or three taps for them to show the grouper the stick without having to tap and the grouper literally holding back and then he went into okay I'm going to put the stick down and you can come and when the feeder tube goes down you can come and feed off the feeder tube gently and I taught them how to do it gently and they actually would come in and just grab the fish gently and, and then when the stick went away completely, I didn't have to have it visible, I didn't have to tap, I didn't have to do anything. The grouper understood when I arrived down on the bottom, let's say I'm teaching someone and have the feeder tube, I go to the grouper and I go like this, <laughs> and the grouper comes next to me, and then all I have to do is at the end of the dive is reward the grouper with two or three fish for having waited. It's like, oh, thank you for waiting, and they actually wait till mm. I provide them with the with the feeder tube. So it's a totally different reaction than sharks. It's actually a little bit more rewarding. They're amazing. Mm. Yeah. I, I wondered whether you tried it with something a bit more domestic, like a cat. You know how you how you rub its nose and. Or are your dogs very well trained? <laughs> No, because I'm a terrible mom. I let I let them get away with murder. They do listen. They remember. So the one that I, I had off the street, he was already of two or three when I had them. So it's been a little bit harder to train him. The other one I've had as a puppy, yes, he's been very well trained. But the one that I took off the street, has, uh, he is my mech monster. He is uh, um, quite a unique personality. But the reason why is this because I'm, a, I'm, I'm not as repetitive with, with them as I am with, uh, with the animals out there. With the animals out there, I never falter, never change, never let my emotions get in. Yeah. With my dogs, I'm a cuddling monster. And, and so I come home and maybe there's a little mishap and I do the cold shoulder, which is the new method of training, right? You ignore the dog. You don't pet him. You don't say anything. You just go, oh, look at that. And you don't talk to them and you ignore them for a little bit. And then they know that they've done something wrong. 
Um, so we'll leave that here for the time being. So yes. thank you very much for talking about talking to us about sharks and how you got into diving. And, and now's a good point for us to uh, part the waves there for the time being. And then we can catch up with you at a later time for talking about cave diving. And so, OK, sounds good. Yeah. Send me a message. It's been good so far. You guys happy? Thank you very much. Thank you. Wow, what an amazing lady. A very inspirational conversation for divers and non-divers alike. And we really look forward to chatting to Christina Zanato more in the future. So keep tuning in. If you have any questions for Christina, then please do email us and contact us via our social media platforms. We would like to clarify that we are in no way affiliated with any agency or organisation. And all opinions expressed in this episode are our own and those of our guests too. You're welcome make comments about the show or if you have any suggestions on topics for future episodes or would like to be a guest then do send us an email or a message on our social media platforms if you'd like to follow us on social media you can find us on facebook and instagram at the big scuba and on twitter at the underscore big underscore scuba check out our facebook shop where we now have bespoke big scuba podcast hoodies for sale and thank you for all those that have placed the orders so far. We also have a YouTube channel where all episodes are streamed along with footage of dives and your co-hosts. Please do subscribe to the YouTube channel and like and share, share, share. Our email address is thebigscubapodcast at gmail.com and we do respond very quickly. And if you'd like to support us, become a patron. So go to patreon.com forward slash thebigscubapodcast. Here you can make a monthly subscription and these start from as little as $2, just £1.60, £1.60. You can become a big octopus for $2, a big dolphin for $5 or a big orca for $20 and then a big, big blue whale for $50. Any contributions are really appreciated by us, so biggest thank you to our current patrons. Our music is supplied by a local band called Telling Truths and Blood Like Honey, and you can listen to them more via iTunes and Spotify. We also have behind the scenes support from Josh, who looks after our website and our YouTube channel. Josh is a keen photographer, and you can see his work on social media um, at j8photography. So, thanks for tuning in, and we look forward to meeting up with you again in episode 10. Bye.